Well, hello. Happy spring to all you beautiful homesteaders, land lovers, and farm life dreamers. Today, you have the sweet treat to hear from a guy who has inspired thousands and thousands of people to plant fruit trees, one of his passions, and grow food in any space they have, working with what they've got wherever they are to feed themselves and their families good, clean, nutrient-dense food. He's Greg Peterson, permaculturist and thought leader, blogger, podcaster, educator, so much more. His website is urbanfarm.org. He's also the creator of the Urban Farm Fruit Tree Program, inspiring people to grow food in their own yards for the last 15 years. He has inspired over 3,000 people to plant fruit trees this year alone. He's a man on a mission with a ton of knowledge, positivity, and can-do mindset. Over four plus decades in his urban farm in Phoenix, Arizona, he built two feet of topsoil on his one-third acre lot as he lived in the midst of four plus million people in the low desert and ate food from his own property 365 days a year. Yep, imagine that. Greg says, if you can grow it and share it, you're a farmer. It's not about acreage, it's about mindset. Today, he lives in Nashville, North Carolina, and because of the amazing food scene that's local to him, he continues his life's work in Phoenix and Asheville, working on building resilient local food systems and so much more. I'm not going to do this discussion justice by the summary. This interview was an amazing meeting of the minds, and I'm sure to work more with Greg going forward. I've got to tell you, if you're not interested in being inspired and thinking bigger and more expansively, positively... To stop listening now. I'm Judith Farrell Horvath of Fairhill Farm in Central Ohio. I help people tackle the steep learning curve that goes with adopting a farm fresh lifestyle, no matter how big your farming venture, in the hopes of inspiring you to seize and wield a portion of your food independence and bodily health. My mission is to help you sidestep avoidable errors and unnecessary costs or losses and help you accelerate adopting that fresh, healthy lifestyle that you wish for. I bring you stories of others who made the same leap, hear of their successes and fails in their lives today. And now enjoy this interview. Hi, Greg, nice to have you. Wonderful to be here. Thank you so much. And after our pre-call, we have a lot to talk about. I am excited. I can't wait to get to it. So could you introduce yourself to the audience and talk about what you do and uh, where they can find your work online? Absolutely. My name is Greg. I do the Urban Farm podcast. My website is urbanfarm.org. And I have spent at least this lifetime probably many others talking about food and the challenges of our food system. In fact, my first memory of working on our food system came when I was nine, nine years old. I was really interested in fish aquariums and growing food, growing fish to eat. So, wow. and that was in the late sixties. So I have been, uh, stuck with or working with this since then. Wow, so that's uh, aquaculture, right? Aquaculture, yep. I, okay. In fact, my first business in Phoenix, Arizona 
When I was 15 years old, I used to clean service and build fish ponds. Some of them were aquaculture ponds. I converted swimming pools when I was 16, 17, 18 years old uh, into aquaculture ponds. So I've been, I've been playing with our food system ever since. Do you still do any aquaculture? You're in the desert somewhere, right? Well, I was in the desert. I, I lived in Phoenix, Arizona for 54 years. And a year and a half ago, I decided with my partner, Heidi, that we wanted to move someplace quiet. And we landed 1,900 miles away in Asheville, North Carolina. Oh, my goodness. Totally different place to grow food. Yeah. Yeah. What's that like, moving your farm? Well, we actually didn't move the farm. I have uh, two businesses that still reside in Phoenix. So I visit Phoenix a couple of times a year. And the farm that I ran for 32 years was a third of an acre that was 80 feet wide and 160 feet deep. And mostly it was about educating people on how to turn their yard into an edible landscape. And what I created in 32 years at the urban farm was what we now call an old growth food forest, where every day there was something to eat. We would grow fruit trees. I had 80 fruit trees on a third of an acre. We had herbs and vegetables that came up every year just because I planted open pollinated seeds. The plants went to seed and then the next year the plants just came back over and over and over again. It's really you know what nature what happens in nature and I uh, discovered in 1991 permaculture. I like yes. to call permaculture the art and science of working with nature. Yes. So how do we work in the flow of nature rather than against nature? Mm-hmm. And after discovering that, it was like, wow, I can just make an edible landscape that manages itself. And all there is for me to do is harvest food. So that's what I did. So the urban farm itself was sold to a really nice uh, couple that is continuing the work there. And I moved to Asheville, North Carolina, just outside and purchased four acres. And I am in the process of getting organic certification and planting orchards. I have over 200 elderberries, mulberries, and other fruit trees to plant here in the next four weeks. Oh my goodness, it's so much planting. Yeah, so much planting. You know, I didn't, in my little urban farm in Phoenix, Mm -hmm. a third of an acre, planting 10 fruit trees at a time was pretty straightforward. And I kind of did it over time. You know, those fruit trees arrived over a 30 year period that I lived there. All of a sudden we move here and I get this wild hair that I want to plant fruit trees. So I purchased 200 fruit trees, (laughs) elderberries, smallberries, apples, stone fruit, uh, blueberries, and I have them all in pots. And then I start planning on how I'm going to actually get them planted. And 200 fruit trees requires 800 linear feet of planting rows. And it was like, oh my gosh, what did I just do? (laughs) So we're in the process of automating that, you know, getting heavy equipment in here and automating it to get them planted. So you have uh, planting like spade machines or augers to drill this stuff out? Yeah, well, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna start with a sod cutter. Sod cutter will cut an 18 inch wide swath two and a half inches deep out of the pasture. 
So we'll do this sod cutting and then mm -hmm. we'll lift that sod to the downhill side. So in permaculture, what we do is we talk about creating swales. A swale is an on-contour ditch so that when the water runs down the hill, it catches in the ditch and spreads at the same elevation in that ditch. So what I'm doing is I'm using the sod cutter to create a swale. The extra sod will go just downhill, so it'll create a little mound on the downhill side. And then we'll come back in with an auger, auger out the holes, plant the trees. I'm gonna lay cardboard down underneath on the bottom of this uh, sod cut space and mm -hmm. backfill it with two and a half inches of woody mulch. And what that'll do is that'll knock back any grass and weeds for the first year or two while the elderberries, mulberries and other fruit trees get established. So after that, I'm just curious real quick, just I just planted six fruit trees uh, a week ago. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so I was talking with my husband about uh, what to put around the bottom and mm -hmm. I didn't, I didn't consider cardboard. Uh, we were thinking of doing that, um, that permeable rubber mat, but yep. I don't know. I haven't done it because it's, it's, it's artificial. Like it bothers me. Like there's something yeah. in it that just, it just kind of bothers me a little bit. Well, and what we're trying to do, the, so let's step back here a minute. Sure. And I preach, I preach this just about every time I speak publicly. What preach is, he <laughs> what is healthy soil? Healthy soil has five components. And it's likely that you have just one of those components in your soil that you planted in. That's dirt. <laughs> dirt is broken down rock. It's got light, lots of nice micronutrients in it. But if that's all you have, good luck growing anything. Yeah. It's dense. It doesn't breathe. So the other four components of healthy soil are airspace, mm -hmm. water or moisture, mm -hmm. organic matter, and everything that's alive in the soil. Mm -hmm. My 32 years at the urban farm, what I did every year, I didn't do, I did no till, so I didn't do any tilling. And what I would do at the urban farm every year is I would add two to three inches of compost right on top. And when I left there, I had two feet of healthy growing topsoil on my entire yard because I had been adding compost throughout. And so back to your question, Wow, what do you do for your trees? I run a fruit tree program in Phoenix, Arizona. We do education on how to grow fruit trees in the desert and well, really how to grow fruit trees anywhere, but specifically we're desert focused. And what we suggest that people do for their fruit trees is you plant your tree. You know, we usually suggest a two by two by one foot deep square hole that because what can happen with round holes is the roots can get bound root bound in a round hole oh if you put a, if you put a square hole in then it helps that not happen so you you dig your hole oh. and what we suggest that people put in the hole mm -hmm. is 40 percent native soil 60% planting mix, so some kind of pops, uh, planting mix, cocoa pea, something like that, compost. And we mix that all in a wheelbarrow. And then a mixture of the following things. 
we suggest adding two ounces of mycorrhiza. What is mycorrhiza? Mycorrhiza is soil life and it binds to the roots of the trees and plants and helps them grow farther out and pull water from farther out. So two ounces of mycorrhiza, a pound of azomite. In the desert, we actually put in two pounds of azomite. Azomite is a micronutrients vitamin pill. If you can get a hold of them, we suggest two pounds of worm castings, mm -hmm. worm poop. Mm -hmm. And here I'm going to add a quarter cup of potassium uh, because our soil is really low in potassium. Then you mm -hmm. mix all of that up in the wheelbarrow. Mm -hmm. You put your tree at the correct depth in the hole and you backfill it with all that stuff I just suggested. Mm -hmm. And what we're doing with that is we're, we're setting that fruit tree up for ultimate success. We give them nutrients. We give them soil life. There's nutrients in the azomite, there's uh, soil life in the worm castings and the mycorrhiza. And, um, and then we usually throw a couple of pounds of organic fertilizer on top in the basin when the tree is planted and you mm -hmm. water that in. Mm -hmm. And then what we suggest, and you can, what I'm doing here is I'm putting down cardboard and the cardboard will break down over time and milk, make healthy soil and then woody mulch on top of that. There's a website out there called chipdrop.com. And if you're in an urban area, it's easy to get a load. If you're in a, in a suburban or a rural area, it's a little harder to get a load. But what they'll do is they'll drop up to 20 cubic yards of chipped wood in a pile. That's a lot. That's, That's a, a lot. Problem. That's a lot. Um, and you can buy it in bags. You can, you know, you can order it, but through chip drop, it's essentially free. Yeah. And then you put that down on top of the cardboard. So we put down two to three inches of woody mulch. And in the desert, we actually suggest six inches of woody mulch. Hmm. So what that woody mulch does, this is a really important key. It normalizes the temperature. Hmm. So in the summer, it keeps the temperature lower. In the winter, it keeps the temperature higher because it's an insulation layer. Mm -hmm. It acts like a sponge, so it holds the water. Mm -hmm. And at the interface between the woody mulch and the dirt, it starts making really happy, healthy soil very fast. Mm, love that. So that is how we suggest planting a fruit tree for the ultimate success. Now, when I sell, so in our fruit tree program in Phoenix, we do fruit tree education for free. And then people can buy fruit trees from us. And I often will tell people, you're going to spend as much money on supplements and getting your tree planted as you are going to spend on the tree the first year, just so, just so you know. Oh, wow. That's a great tip. Yeah. And this sets you up for ultimate success mm -hmm. for your fruit trees. And we are finding amazing results when people are doing this. Like I had an email from a lady yesterday and she showed me a picture of her uh, mid pride peach that she planted in January. That was five months ago. She picked it up from us as a bare root tree, three quarters of an inch at the base mm -hmm. and about three feet tall. Mm -hmm. And it was dormant. So there wasn't any leaves on it yet. Mm -hmm. It was six feet tall and two foot in diameter in five months. And she said, Greg, I did everything you told me to do. And it's like, that is what we can expect. And our trees, 
This is what people don't get. Some people will put, put a tree in the ground and then just walk away. They need to be fed multiple times a year because fruit trees, just like human beings, eat every day. Now, we don't have to feed them every day, but having food available for them is going to have them thrive. Wow. So that's what I would do for your, your fruit tree. Don't put plastic. Don't put weed barrier. The weed barrier stops the interaction of creating healthy soil. Okay. I'm going to be doing the, I'll be doing the cardboard. Well, actually they're already in the ground. So should I take those nutrients that you suggested and kind of shuffle them in around the edges or make a tea out of it and pour it over? I would absolutely do that. In fact, okay. if, you, if you send me an uh, email reminder, I can send you a video on how to fix a broken basin around a tree. I put it up on YouTube a couple of years ago. I will certainly do that. that and it's me awesome. being goofy. As you can tell, I'm passionate and goofy you about are. it. You're so perfect for this job. I'm, I'm, this is one of those things. I love talking to people who do things like this because it's not a job. It's, it's, it's a calling. Right. You know, I can tell that oh. you're passionate about it. Yeah. Yeah. And it just really injects the energy and the enthusiasm, especially when you're dealing with um, saying the same stuff again and again and having the same questions from new people. It's like, it's just boundless enthusiasm. I can, I can yeah. feel it. I can feel well, it. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. So what has, what is your, what's your uh, big priority these days? Are you, you're teaching, but what's, what's, what's your why? What's the, what's the driving force behind this? Uh, hmm. So when I was 14 years old, mm -hmm. I wrote a paper on how we were overfishing the oceans from an eighth grade biology class. I knew back then, remember the aquaculture? I knew back then that there was something really wrong with the way we were living and eating on the planet. That was 1974. To this day, I have no idea where that came from, except maybe a little bit from Jacques Cousteau, for those of you that are old enough to remember him. I used to oh, watch Jacques him. On, I yeah. love Jacques Cousteau. Right? Yeah. I used to watch him when I was a kid on TV. And, it was, and so that propelled me forward. And then in 1981, I, got, I found myself, I was 20 years old at the time, I found myself on the board of the Arizona Aquaculture Association. And we visited a farm in Southern Arizona that was raising tilapia. They would harvest the tilapia, clean the tilapia. And when you clean a fish, you get about 30% meat and 70% everything else that's left over. They were throwing out the leftover to the wildlife. First of all, that has a huge impact on the wildlife in the area. And secondly, that's a huge resource that they're just throwing away. So somewhere in 81, 82, 83, I wrote down on paper, and I still have these notes somewhere, and in a circle, you know, going the circle method, how do we make a fish farm where everything on the farm gets used? where there's no waste, where, uh, you know, the fish entrails, the fish stuff gets used as fertilizer. And on years when you're not raising fish in the ponds, you raise rice. And then the next year, the fish come back and they eat the rice stubble. And, you know, how do we put natural systems in place to move this stuff forward? And fast forward, I already said 1991 when I discovered permaculture. 
And I like to call, I think I said this, the art and science of working with nature. How do we work in the flow of nature? And when I discovered permaculture, it was like, for me, it was like, wow, there's something that I can call the way that we think. The way that I think. There's something that we can call the way that I think. And so I'm studying permaculture. In the same year, I discovered a book called Ishmael. It's a, a conversation between a gorilla and a man. Mm-hmm. And the gorilla is the teacher. And he's talking, how, talking about how we came to be as humans on the planet, taking up and using up the planet. There was a, it was a bright spot in that year. The third thing that happened for me, and this goes to your question, is I did a seminar at, I did a seminar at Landmark Education called their advanced course. And in that seminar, I was asked to create a mission and vision for my life. Remember, this is 1991. That's 32 years ago, 33 years ago. Yeah, yeah. What I created for myself in that moment was I am the person on the planet responsible for transforming our global food system. Our global food system is broken in many ways. It's a masterful feat in many ways, but it delivers just-in-time food in a system that has about a three-day supply of food in it. If there's a breakdown in the system, food disappears. And we saw this in COVID. We saw this with the storms um, in Texas a few years ago. There was about a three-hour supply of food on the shelves in the grocery stores. Yeah. And that is a really eye-opener. And there there was academic studies done maybe 15 years ago on the three-day supply. If you want to go look up, you know, on the internet, uh, there's, I'm sure that's out there. Uh, And that's really what I speak to is how do we create local food supplies. The fourth thing, 1991, I was 30 years old. 1991 was a extremely pivotal year for me. Those first three things happened. And then the, the cream of the crop was a friend of mine was sailing in the South Pacific and they anchored in an island looking for a grocery store. And people looked at him a little baffled and said, uh, just go pick your own. Huh? And for me, that was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> Food and the Quinn, Daniel Quinn and Ishmael talks about this. Food used to be free until we as we as corporations locked it up. So what if we had food growing everywhere? So that's really what I do. I encourage people to grow food in your front and backyard. Uh, fast forward to 2001. I was a full-time student. I went back to college at the age of 40 and I was a full-time student studying urban planning, plant biology, and sociology. I was doing it for fun this time around. I, the first time I was in at college, I hated it and I flunked out, but I went back for fun this time. And I discovered that I was already doing what I wanted to do, which was share this with people. And I had been living at the urban farm for 10, 12 years at that point. I was farming my front and backyard. Remember, a third of an acre. That's only 80 feet wide and 160 feet deep. My front yard was 80 feet wide and 30 feet deep. And I grew most of my food in the front yard. Why? So that people could see it when they were walking by. 
so that it became a showcase. So what I created in Phoenix was the urban farm, an environmental showcase home that we would then open up for tours and classes. But during that same time in 2001, two and three, I was farming my front and backyard. Part-time, I was there maybe working the yard one day a week and I would harvest the food early on a Wednesday morning. I would pack it in my truck and haul it to the local farmer's market. I'd make two or $300 cash. When I was done at two o'clock, I would take whatever I had left over to a local restaurant. Susan used to run the Calico Cow in Phoenix. And I would take everything that I had left over from her and she would feed me lunch. So you ask me why I do what I do. That is why I do what I do. And the other big reason is that we have left a shitstorm for the younger generations. Yes. I didn't have any kids, but I have nieces and nephews. I have friends that are <laughs> millennials that are in their 20s and 30s. And we, we have left them a problem, a big problem. So I'm trying to do everything that I can do right now to fix that problem as best as I can. I really agree with what you said. My, my, it really resonates with me because I think back to how I got started in sort of uh, my own gardening adventures and it was from food allergies in my kids. Mm -hmm. In the process of trying to figure Amen. out what they were allergic to, I learned, I took some classes. Of all things, you have to take a class to learn how to read food labels. Oh, wow. What is going on in our food says the fact that I had to take a class to learn how to read food labels and wave my decoder ring across them and understand what's in what I'm eating and what's in what I'm feeding my kids and learning what those words and those terms actually mean and what's in them and then going online and going to the MSDS sheets and seeing what what is the safety for this and what is this it's i realized that what's in our food isn't food at all it's other stuff exactly and that's what led me to ripping up my backyard and um making it into a huge organic garden and planting fruit trees poorly yes and yeah starting the physical healing um one thing led to another got backyard chickens they were against the the rules from the homeowners association i got busted <laughs> did you have to get rid of them or did oh you yeah i was so mad too because this is this isn't a story i've, I've told anyone i've mentioned that i got busted for backyard chickens but see when we bought our house the homeowners association had sort of been defunct for so many years that when we were sold this house we were told there was no homeowners association oh. and there wasn't but someone had revitalized it and some legal something on some deep depth legal loophole in the depths of everyone's deed restrictions. And so there was not a homeowners association that was active, collecting dues, doing anything, nothing when we moved there. But within the first year, suddenly it was revitalized. We had to pay dues. I was like, what? And one of the covenants was, which we had not gotten when we bought our house, which we were told in our disclosure statement, there is no homeowners association. There we are with a ream of rules we already own the house. We are in the 08 um, recession. We're upside yeah. down in our mortgage at this point because all the property values had crashed. And uh, we were told, uh, your backyard chickens are illegal. Wow. 
So I just decided to, I just decided to fight it and let them bust me and, and, and make them go through the loopholes. And they did. And, um, in the end, wow. um, I was, I was forced to get rid of them, but yeah, I, I butchered them on my front yard protest. Oh my God. Wow. <laughs> that was mad. Mm-hmm. And this is a re- this is a really important topic that we're talking about right now. Yeah. HOAs should not have the right to tell you if you can have grow food yes. or not in your yard. That yes. is a basic human right. I agree. It is absolutely a basic human right. Now, a guy I know in Phoenix live in, lives in an HOA. Mm-hmm. And one day he noticed that a friend of his or one of his neighbors was raising tropical birds. It was legal for them to have tropical birds, but not to have chickens. So he renamed his chickens to um, jungle fowl and reclassified them as tropical birds. And it got past the homeowners association. And now he's got multiple people in his neighborhood keeping chickens, but birds. growing your own food is a basic human right. Yes. And for HOAs to tell you, you can't do it is, is a travesty of justice as far as I'm concerned. And well, we, <laughs> we all know if you've been paying attention to the news, there's a lot of noise about HOAs right now. And, uh, you know, I would have to say that, a piece of advice is just make sure you don't buy in an HOA. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a tough thing. Um, I mean, it was created with, with, I don't know. I think there's just some very short-sighted rules. Uh, Some people make these rules that um, are very Mm -hmm. short-sighted. Now I live in Ohio and in the state of Ohio, we, I don't know if this is still the case, but it was when we moved out um, a couple of years after, I think, I think it's still the case. Homeowners associations now have been backed by the state, which means they can, the homeowners association can utilize the justice system of the state to enforce the rules. Yep. So if you don't pay your dues, crime, police enforcing things, right? You can have, it's the enforcement. Um, Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, that really upset me because I mean, even in our homeowners association, solar panels weren't allowed. Now this was, you know, uh, this is a homeowners community that existed a long time ago. And, yeah. you know, they, they couldn't have seen what's coming, but no outdoor clotheslines. Why not? Right? So you got to use that energy for that. Yeah. Um, no one rainwater collection because it's unsightly. Why not? Um, yeah. Um, everything has to be tied into the sewer, the street, no gray water collection. Okay. Must be shingle asphalt, shingle roofs. No metal roof, no other things, right? Um, no fences around your gardens unless they have been approved and they had to be of certain materials and things like oh, that. That's, so did you yeah. end up moving? We did. We, I, my husband and I looked at each other and I'm like, I, I don't want to live like this. This isn't yeah. what we bought. We and This is what we ended up with, but this isn't what we bought. Yeah. And we looked at each other and we decided this isn't a phase. And we started looking it took us two years to find our farm but we did we moved to our farm and now we have 19 acres mm-hmm. nice yeah well, and, and you know this this really highlights something that i highlight in my podcast and i think that you'll resonate with too and that's go find what you love yes. if you're stuck with something if you're stuck in a job this is the reason i do my podcast is to showcase to people that you can 
grow your own food. And we have farmers that come on to my podcast and that were doing something and now they're farming just like you, yeah. you know, you were doing something and now you're farming. Don't get stuck in something you don't love. It sucks the life out of you. It does. Yeah. Yes. It, it like sucked a piece of my soul out that I didn't realize it wasn't, it wasn't dead, but it certainly had been stepped on and, and like, um, <laughs> yeah. and um, it, I didn't realize it until COVID. I mean, mm. COVID was just such a scales falling from the eyes moment. You know what I mean? It was yeah. sort of like this awakening going, I have this extra two hours because it was an hour to work and an hour back. I have these wow. extra two hours every day. What can I do with these two hours every day? Take That's a, a lot of time. Yeah. And I Plant did a, a fruit lot. tree. Watch the frogs <laughs> in your pond out front. Yes. Walk barefoot in your yard. I was watching the movement of the sheep. I was watching the way that certain flowers were blooming at the same time. I was watching the behavior of the wild animals. What time of the day did the crows come in and drink from the sheep water? Uh, Right. The the movement of the hawks and and the time of year for black vultures coming in. Um, All of these things, even like the people coming and going down the valley road and the time of day for certain events it seems small and and you know nosy neighbor but it all is part of the environment mm-hmm. and it all affects the flow of everything in you know your area yeah yeah and it's so i lived in phoenix for 54 years about 15 years ago i started a conversation in my head I wanted to go someplace quiet because my home in Phoenix was in the, right in the middle of 4.7 million people. Oh my God. So you really in the middle of it. You were in right. the middle of it. We were in the middle of it. If you stood on my roof and could see 50 miles in each direction, it would be city. Oh, the, the downtown was five miles to the South. And you know, it was a beautiful place. I love Phoenix. In fact, here we are a little over a year being gone. I still, We'll, you know, I'll have a moment where I'm at 16th Street and Camelback at the Duck and Decanter, my favorite restaurant or, you know, so that happens. But about 15 years ago, I decided I wanted to go someplace quiet. And that's part of what propelled us to Asheville, North Carolina was the quietness. And we're on, we're suburban rural edge mm-hmm. on four acres. And, you know, besides the occasional lawnmower or somebody shooting a gun because we're Mm -hmm. in a rural area Mm -hmm. it's quiet yeah and it's peaceful and it's it's wow and i actually went back i go back to phoenix twice a year for my fruit tree program and when i was back there last september i couldn't believe the amount of noise the amount of stuff that happens that i I stepped away from when we moved here. It's just, it's magic. So we were looking for someplace quiet. Do you feel like that was impacting any other aspect of your life? You didn't realize like the noise and just the the density of other people. Uh, Probably not the density of other people, but Mm -hmm. definitely the pollution. Phoenix is one of the most polluted cities in the country. Oh, I didn't know that. And the heat, Mm. um, you know, and so on and so on. So, yeah, it was, it was, it was other things. So why'd you choose Asheville specifically? If you're willing to move to, you know, almost 2000 miles, like 
the country's your oyster. So why, why Asheville? Um, I worked for 30 plus years on the food system in Phoenix. And I feel in many ways that we made teeny steps in building a sustainable or regenerative food system in Phoenix. Mm -hmm. Uh, And one of the big reasons we picked Asheville was that the food scene, I'm not just talking about restaurants, I'm talking about farms, Mm -hmm. is huge here. Oh, that's good. Yeah. So when I... For this property that we bought, I came to Asheville in December of 2021. And when I was driving around town here, this is how I knew it was the right place for us. When I was driving around town, I saw two different billboards. One of the billboards says, get your local, on a billboard, it said, get your local compost here. That was my response. The uh, the (laughs) other The other billboard that I saw said, your local farm is open, download the app. They had an app, they have an app here for local farms, just for Asheville. It's a community of about 100,000 people. I think there's about 200,000 people in Duncombe County. Um, So it's smaller. And they have a nonprofit called ASAP. It was formed when the tobacco kind of tanked in the late 80s and 90s to support small farmers. And they have hundreds of member farmers in their ASAP nonprofit, teaching them how to farm regeneratively, how to farm organically. And so there's that. Given my connection with the, with the food system, mm-hmm seeing a, that much of the, of a developed local food system brought me to my knees, brought me to tears on multiple yeah. occasions. Yeah. I bet. Um, the climate here is uh, nice. We're far enough inland that we're away from any hurricanes. Uh, mm-hmm. We're between two mountain ranges. So there's no um, tornadoes that we have to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, we get about four inches of rain a month compared to the seven inches of rain that we get a year in Phoenix. So just, you know, I was looking for a lot of that and we found it with Asheville. Wow. So four acres, this must feel like luxurious, huge space to you, yeah. but it's also embryonic, right? It's, it's a blank slate. Do yeah. you, are you enjoying the blank slate or are you? Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. I tell people this all the time, spend at least a year on a property before you make any major changes. Yeah. We have a greenhouse planned. We've been here a year and a month and we have a greenhouse plan. And when we arrived in April and May of last year, we're just like, let's get our greenhouse in. And if we would have put that greenhouse in a year ago, it would have been in the wrong place. <laughs> and yeah. so I'm just taking it a day and a month at a time looking for Where's our backyard at? Because we didn't have a backyard. It was just an open pasture. So I needed to put up when we arrived, we have a dog. And so I needed a instant fence. I call it an insta fence to keep the dog in the backyard. Mm -hmm. And so I got snow fencing, Mm -hmm. you know, the wood slatted snow fencing. And I, and I brought with me 
uh, tw about 20 metal stakes. And so really the within two or three days of me arriving, I put in a, this temporary fence, my Insta fence around the backyard. And it's moved multiple times and it'll move again. And after a year and a month, I think I finally know where I'm going to put my backyard fence at. So spend at least a year on a property, getting to know the property, see how things are flow. Where do you walk on a property? Where does the water flow on the property? You know, where are the birds at? You mentioned the crows. Um, do you have squirrels, mice, mm -hmm. moles, mm -hmm. uh, rabbits? What do you, you know, just start paying attention. Bears. We have bears on our street. So, you know, really paying attention to all that and then planning for that is uh, yeah. what I've spent a lot of the last year doing. And, and uh, maybe the greenhouse will go in this, this summer. We think we know where it's gonna go, but it might move still. That is really neat. Uh, I always felt like I was cautious. My husband likes to, you know, build things and he, li he likes to plan things and, yeah. and, um, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's great, but I'm a little bit more cautious. I'm like, let's just wait or watch. Great plan. Maybe we want it here. Maybe we want it here. Maybe we want it out here. Right. Yep. Exactly. Uh, just, just slow down, slow down, slow down one step at a time. And I always feel like I'm the one tapping on the brakes. Um, so I, I kind of enjoy hearing other people that I respect with the mm -hmm. sort of wisdom of Thank you. planning and doing once. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you've been doing this longer than I have. Um, and that's, that's not an age thing. That's just, <laughs> it's just a thing. Yeah. But, yeah. We've we've moved several times. Um, I grew up military, so we moved all the time. Mm -hmm. So uh, I understand how important it is to recognize the small changes, like mm -hmm. an overhang over a porch makes such a big difference, or the way that right? this is laid out inside, the distance between the dishwasher and the you know cabinet on the opposite side of the kitchen how many inches should it be so the two people aren't bumping butts and the two and the cabinet door isn't hitting the dishwasher when it little little the comb dumb things or which way does the door open and little dumb things but they'll drive you crazy and they're inefficient and they cause problems and the flow and the energy just gets changed and it's important to be thoughtful and measured yeah yeah, big differences. Good wisdom. We took, uh, so on, when you walk out our back door, yeah, 50 feet to the left is a street, kind of down the hill. But mm -hmm. when people walk down the street, they could look up into our back patio and into our backyard. And so I wanted a privacy fence there. So yeah. uh, we built uh, maybe three months ago, we built a privacy fence. Mm -hmm. And uh, it took me six, eight months to figure out how I wanted to build it. Mm -hmm. And then there's the gate. And Heidi and I have been discussing how is the gate going to work? Because you're right. Which direction does it open? It's really important. Mm -hmm. And so we took three months of sitting with that. We talked about it every couple, three weeks. And we built a gate this past weekend. And it works pure, perfectly. It's beautiful. And uh, it's, it does what it's supposed to do. And that came from observation. In permaculture, the first thing and the last thing is observation. Pay attention to what's going on in your space. And don't just pay attention to what's going on in your space. Pay attention to 
what's going on around you. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I used to encourage people to do, well, I still do, but when I was in Phoenix at the urban farm, don't just observe on your third of an acre. Mm-hmm. Go to the next block and the next block and the next block and see what works. Mm-hmm. I was trying to put shade on my driveway for decades when I was there. And about four years ago, I was out on a walk in a neighborhood and I found somebody with a mesquite tree. It's a desert tree that they'd planted in their front yard exactly where I wanted to plant a shade tree to shade my driveway. And it was like, it it took me 30 years or 28 years (laughs) to figure it out. But it was like, oh, keep an eye open, keep a mind open to make sure that you're looking elsewhere, the answers will be there. Yeah. 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 That's cool. That's, that's a, that's a good piece of advice. That's a good piece of advice. Yeah. And and inspiration from others, certainly, you know, networking, visiting other places, looking around different areas of the country, even. What I'm, what I encourage people to do and what I did at the urban farm. So I started calling my place that I bought in 1989. I started calling it the urban farm in 2001 mm-hmm. and we opened it up for tours oh. and we did tours on probably six times a year mm-hmm. and we'd open up the front and backyard mm-hmm. and I would just talk about what was going on in the landscape. Mm-hmm. And what I really encourage people to do is if you have a cool project, start opening it up for tours. And here's the other cool thing. Remember I said I was taking groceries to the farmer's market and I came home every week with a couple hundred bucks. Yeah. We do the tours for free and then ask for a donation. Beautiful. And people love to see the place and love to donate for such a, such a cool space. So if you have a farm, a farmette, mm-hmm. an mm-hmm. urban farm, a cool food project, start doing tours, educate people, show mm-hmm. them how easy it is to do. There's a name for it. It's called ecotourism. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want to look it up, but mm-hmm. we, in the 20, in the 20, one years that I did tours at the urban farm, Mm -hmm. we would do tours, like I said, five, six times a year. And on a weekend, we'd get two to 300 people come through and they were timed tours. So we started them at eight 30 and they went till, till nine 45. And then we'd start another one at 10 15. And so people knew when to arrive because it was, it was, it wasn't just a walk through. It was an educational event where I would start in the front yard and mm-hmm. I would, people would say, Oh, what's this? And how are you doing this? And why is this? And what's this tree? And, and I would mm-hmm. just, I always had a, uh, a theme that I would do, mm-hmm. but then I would just rift off of what people were interested in. And I easily in 21 years, we had 15,000 people walk through our yard. How did you, how did you, was it the same people coming through again and again? 4.7 million people. Oh, that's fair. Yeah. 4.7 million people. So uh, social media. Um, I, I started my third business in 1985 Mm -hmm. and it was a technology business. I owned the Apple authorized training center in Phoenix from 85 to 95 and 
Um, I was, we were doing programming and that kind of stuff. So I was in technology as email was happening. Okay. And also during that time, we were printing monthly newsletters for our computer business and mailing them. Wow. And email showed up. And for me, it was like a mind explosion. Like, <laughs> whoa, hold on. I can send somebody a piece of mail that'll show up on their computer and they can open it. And I didn't have to spend 32 cents on a stamp and a dollar on printing and labor to get it out. So in the late 90s, I started collecting email addresses. And um, so I was an early adopter of email and getting the word out via email. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just highly, so one of the things that I did in Phoenix in 99, 2000, 2001, is a friend of mine and I, we put together a planting calendar. It is a planting calendar for the low desert. And it tells you what to plant when, because if you plant in the desert, if you plant broccoli in March, good luck. It'll just go to seed and die. It's the wrong time of year. A big piece of your success for planting a garden and growing food is making sure that you're planting at the right time of the year. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So we put, so I put together this planting calendar and I've given away tens of thousands of them in the past 22 years. Mm-hmm. And people just go to plantingcalendar.org. Again, it's only for the low desert, but if you want to see how the system works, you go to plantingcalendar.org, you download the planting calendar, give me your email address. So all of a sudden I have your email address to communicate with you. Very so good. often, especially in the last five or six years, tours of the urban farm would sell out. You know, we would have, uh, you know, at the 8.30 a.m. one on Saturday, we'd have 60 people, which is about as much as I could do. And then at the 10.30 one, we'd have 60 people. And then we started doing them on Friday mornings where we'd have 60 people. And then there was a happy hour one that we used to do on Friday night, too. So it, it really speaks. I, you got a question here. but. Yeah, it really yeah. speaks to people's desire to know where their food comes from. Well, that's exactly what I was getting to. So I was like, do you feel like this is an upswell that happened historically recently? Or do you feel there's some other reason that your your tours were gaining popularity and selling out? I have this theory. Okay. I call it uh, my 99-1 theory. 99% of the time people change because they get hit by a Mack truck. Uh tornadoes and storms in Texas, COVID, um, a trucker strike. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. 1% of the time people change because they choose to change. It's like, Oh, there's something coming. I should do something different about this. So what I'm finding is that all along the way, there was a steady flow. And then a recession happens in 2008. Mm-hmm. And my business explodes. COVID happened. I put 20,000 new people on my email list the month after the COVID shutdown. Say that again. So again. So 20,000 people within, within about new a, people? New people. I put 20,000 new people on my email list within four to six weeks of COVID hitting. Why? Mac truck. Went, a Mac truck. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Um, When, so in the nineties, when Ebola was around, I was really interested in virus and viral and I study that kind of stuff. It fascinates me. And so by January of 2020, I knew something was happening. Yeah. I knew something was coming. And so I was starting to prep and stocked up on food. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I didn't know what was going to happen, but I knew there was something coming mm-hmm. and um, shutdown happened on like March 15th of 2020 mm-hmm. on March 10th. I started having a conversation with my team. I said, what if we did a free gardening class online every day for three months? Now that didn't last very long because seven days a week was hard, but we did two months of five days a week. And we just, we used, um, let's see, we were using, Zoom wasn't really big then. So we were using another online delivery platform. And every day at 5 p.m. Pacific, I got together with my team and a presenter and we gave a free class. In 90 days, we gave 60 free classes on how to grow your food. And wow. so, yeah, back to your question. And that is, I always get a steady uptick. And when the Mack truck happens, I'm prepared. Let's give it class a day. And then we just put it out there. We put it out on social media and hey, come and join us. And we had people that were there with us every single day. Diehard regulars, they, they joined and they stuck with you. Yep. Yep. Wow. Yeah. So it, it, it ebbs and it flows. And really the big, the big things happen when the Mack truck arrives. So you think there's another Mack truck coming? Many. Yeah, I do too. So yeah, the, the way nature works. Mm-hmm is it works in ebbs and flows. In nature, there's something called carrying capacity. Mm -hmm. Carrying capacity is the capacity for an an, an, ecosystem to manage the amount of biological waste in it. Now that's that's very boiled down and simplified. Here's what it looks like in real life. You have a fish pond and that fish pond can hold 10 fish, a hundred snails and a thousand algaes. And so somebody comes along and decides they want to feed the fish. So they start feeding the fish. And all of a sudden there's a hundred fish, a thousand snails and 10,000 algae and no filter on the pond. Mm. So at some point, there's too much poop in the pond. Yeah. And at some point, an ecological disaster happens for that pond and a bunch of fish die. And then a mm-hmm. consequently a bunch of snails die. And then consequently a bunch of algae dies and pollutes the whole place. And the strongest ones in the pond survive until it comes back into equilibrium. Mm-hmm. And it's been said that we've exceeded the carrying capacity of the planet by two or three or four times. We've just got, we've got too much waste, too much pollution. 
And what I've done in my work is I've correlated that same concept of out of equilibrium to our political system, to our financial system, definitely, and to the infrastructure. And when I say infrastructure, yeah, that's my infrastructures question. are medical systems, our pipelines, mm -hmm. our bridges, anything mm -hmm. that our culture builds that helps us streamline our shipping system for shipping food. Mm -hmm. So what I've been pondering the past 10 years, 15 years is the balance or imbalance of all four of those systems on the planet. Again, that's the, our environment, the political system, the financial system, and the infrastructure system. And I believe that they're all out of balance and it's just a matter of time before one cascades. And what needs to happen, and this goes back to, I think one of the first things I said, what needs to happen is we need to figure out where our food comes from and how to grow our own. Because when that happens, there's going to be a lot of hungry people out there. Now, I don't know the timing on it, and I can't for sure 100% say that this is truly going to happen, but that's the way nature works. And there's going to be an adjustment. And wouldn't you rather be, whether you're a hippie or a prepper, wouldn't you rather be prepared and growing happy, healthy food yeah. And not. And yeah. here's the other thing. This is a really important piece of this puzzle. We can't do this alone. Yeah. I can't start my farm. This is why I was encouraging people to, to grow 10,000 urban farms in Phoenix or 20,000 urban, urban farms in Phoenix. Because the moment stuff hits the fan, if you're the only one with food, Somebody's going to come and take it from you. But if we build out resilient neighborhoods and resilient communities, communities that build in food infrastructure, communities that build food infrastructure in place, and everybody has food, if there's food growing everywhere, my urban farm, my third of an acre urban farm had food every day. We used to eat out of the yard at the urban farm 365 days a year. That is quite an accomplishment. Every day we mm -hmm. would eat something. And there were literally hundreds of things. Thank you, by the way. Mm -hmm. There were literally hundreds of things that self grew on the urban farm every day, every year. There was parsley and basil and um, kale and broccoli and carrots and beets and that was for me just letting things grow, letting them go to seed. They reseed themselves like tomatoes. Tomatoes, I was at a guy's garden yesterday. And he said, this is my tomato patch. They're all volunteers. There must have been 300 tomato plants growing in his volunteer patch. Food grows. I have said for years, the, the only place, the only place that lack lives on this planet is between our ears. That's profound. The it only is. place that lack lives yep. is between our ears. Yeah. 
Because when we look at nature, uh. when we look at the abundance, I, I plant fruit trees. I love planting fruit trees because you plant them once and they will give you food for decades. I had two citrus trees at the urban farm that were 102 years old when I left and they were still thriving and producing. When I look at the amount of abundance that we can grow in our gardens, that we can grow in our fruit trees that happens in nature, it's mind blowing. You're right. I mean, you, you, I, 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 yes, that is very true. Um, you read stories about passenger pigeons in flocks so big that it took days for these flocks to pass and bison herds that were supported in the Americas where they were, you know, just a sea of animals. The, the amount of life that this earth can sustain is capable of sustaining is amazing and i know that we have certainly done damage to our systems i remember being a kid and flopping down on my in my front yard and looking you know like a ground level you know a little yep. kid, like looking at ground level and looking across the clover which had gone to flower little white clover which yep. had gone to flower and seeing a sea of movement and honeybees Yes. all above the clover in my front yard. Yep. I remember that as a kid. And I told my kids that and they looked at me like, where did you live? I'm like, everywhere was like that. They're like, no. So go out onto our farm. It was our farm. I don't have any neonicotinoids that I'm spraying, right? I haven't put yep. any imidacloprid on anything. And I've got patches of this little white clover and I'm like, oh, there's five bees. Mm. Where'd they go? I'm like, oh, I saw a butterfly today. My parents would take me when I was little, they would take me, they would play tennis at a local club, not even a club, but like a neighborhood little two court yeah. thing that were all over the place. Mm -hmm. This was in suburban DC, not that far outside of the nation's capital. And I was bored out of my mind, but I was a nature freak. And so I would walk around and I would count butterflies. And nice. I remember at the end of an hour and a half saying, I saw 160 today. Today I saw 170. I only saw 150 today. Wow. In an hour and a half walking around just on the shrubs around a tennis court, seeing 150, 100 to 200 butterflies. And now I see like two swallowtails a week. That is profound. It is. That is a way of looking at it that I just hadn't, it had not occurred to me. Yeah. Wow. It's, it's surprising. It's surprising. I remember counting birds nests in my backyard as a kid. I had a lot of alone time <laughs> and counting birds nests. And during the summer, I always knew where there were eight to 10 birds nests of all different kinds of birds. Mm -hmm. And now, I mean, there's birds around, I'm like half of my farm is woods and the other half is pasture and garden. But um, there might be, geez, it was on what, a third of an acre, eight to 10 nests. I know there's not that density of birds in, in other suburban neighborhoods and things like that. Yeah. The books, everything. No, it's not there. It took me years to get praying mantises back. I mean, I'm still seeing more and more um, Euthyca every spring. And this spring is the most I've ever seen. I have, I found 10 Uthikas 
this spring when I was doing my late late winter early spring cleanup I found 10 on my property my first year here zero I've lived here on my farm for 10 years Mm -hmm. and it's it's it recovers but it's slow I haven't seen any giant moths like in the when I was a kid again suburban like Bethesda Maryland come on Bethesda I used to go outside and I could put take a sheet like a big bed sheet Mm-hmm. And, and shine a flashlight on it and then just all the things that come flying you know and land oh, on that sheet yeah. and just look at all those bugs and they're not bugs at all they're insects and lepidoptera and, and orthonoptera and, and everything but anyway looking at all of that insect life and seeing you know two cecropia moths a polyphemus three lunas and a you know, and, and an imperial and, 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 a, and a royal walnut, and you know, look at all these giant moths, these big bat-sized giant moths. I get to see one giant moth a year, maybe. Yeah. And I'm like out in Wild Kingdom area. Like <sighs> that's it. Yeah. And I could I could call a dozen different varieties any night I put that that flashlight up as a kid. I'm going to try that here. That's a good, uh, good experiment. Yeah. It's, um, it's definitely different. We've definitely done something. Yeah. Insect apocalypse is what they call it. Mm. Makes ah. sense. And our pollinators and our fruit trees and our yep. everything. Yeah. Do you have bees? Uh, we, I don't keep bees. You don't keep um, bees. I don't keep them. I, I have put it out to a few people if they want to keep bees on the property. That'd be great. I haven't mm-hmm. done any takers yet. Um, bees take a lot of work. Yeah. And it's not, it's not the kind of work that excites me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I just do the kind of work that excites me, like planting out 100 elderberries next week. I'm the same way. If someone want to keep bees on my property, come keep them. That's great. Right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I'm not going to be doing the B thing. Yeah. 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 So in your, in, in your work, the urban farm work, it isn't really just about urban only, like you named it urban farm, but mm-hmm. it's really anyone who's not a farmer. What even constitutes a farmer, I suppose, but it's, it's growing I have an answer. Yeah. yeah. I have an answer for that. Okay. I, I do have an answer for that. So gardening is a hobby. Mm-hmm. Farming is a profession. It's just. There's the some gray area in there to work with. There is. And yeah. it's just the way we think about it. Okay. So I encourage people to, first of all, grow, grow food. And what farmers do is they grow food and they share it. A lot of farmers will sell their food, but they're basically growing food and they're sharing it. Mm -hmm. So if you're growing food, even for your family, you're sharing it with your family. So you can, I give you permission to call yourself a farmer. (laughs) Love it. And it takes it from a hobby to something that's much more intentional. And then the third step is name your farm. 
Naming, naming, naming your farm creates a, uh, a social credit, social structure for starting conversation. What do you, what do you do? Oh, I'm Greg Peterson. I'm an urban farmer and my farm is the urban farm. Really? Tell me about that. Interesting. I'm getting chills right now. Yeah. And it went from in the early aughts when I was giving tours, uh, how many people have a farm name and not many people to lots of people name their farm. Even, you know, I, I had a friend with two fat cats apartment garden. There's, <laughs> there's uh, James's Beanstalk. There's, you know, people are coming up with names, two piece in a pod. That's Janice. She was, she's the manager of everything that I do. She's two piece in a pod. And it, it brings a levity. It brings a story there for you to share. You know, people want to know, well, what's two piece in a pod about? Or what's the urban farm about? Tell me more about that. Because the truth of the matter is, whether you're far right or far left or anywhere in the middle, if you're breathing, you eat. So anybody can do that. So let's do that. And I figured out probably in 2008 or 2009, I figured out we needed 90,000 urban farms in Phoenix in order to feed Phoenix. How'd you come up with, how'd you do that math? Uh, yeah, I can't remember. It was back then. And I okay. just, you know, I just figured if I, I, I assumed that one farmer could feed so many people and we did the math. And, and so in, like 2009 or so, I started a conversation called 10,000 Urban Farms in Phoenix. What if we created 10,000 Urban Farms in Phoenix? And that's in somebody's front yard, somebody's backyard. It's people like we just talked about, they're growing for their family. This, uh, an urban farm or a rural farm, a small farm is a great part-time project for a stay-at-home mom or dad, somebody that's retired, a high school student. I started my first business when I was 15 years old. I used to clean, service, and build fish ponds in Phoenix, including swimming pools and aquaculture ponds and like that. And I was doing it on the weekend. You too can do this. I For three years, I raised food in my front and backyard and went to the farmer's market every week during college. I mentioned that earlier. And, you know, it brings in some cash flow for very part-time work. So if you had achieved your 10,000 urban farms and you were the food czar of Phoenix and you okay. had carte blanche to create this food system that you have envisioned as being your ideal system, uh -huh. what, what would that structure look like from a local standpoint? So talk to me about your ideal local food system where I'm like getting chills all the way down right now. Where did you come up with that question? It popped into my head. All right. It, hold on. Fell, it fell off the back shelf and just knocked me on the head just this second. I hadn't planned ahead for that. Oh my God. So back in <laughs> 2000 and back in two, I'm looking for a document right now, back in 2000 mm -hmm. in 2000 and Seven, two 2006, 2007. Right before the big recession. Yep. Yeah, year before. I created my local food economy model. 
I have a model. I have a. What was what was the problem you were looking to solve back in two thousand seven? Same problem as nineteen ninety one, nineteen eighty one, two thousand or nineteen seventy four. We have a broken food system. What what can we do to fix it? Okay, so I want I want to go back to this, but not not to dive too deep too quick or go down a rabbit hole but when you say a broken food system what mm -hmm. aspect of the break and i can name a dozen broken spots but what aspect of the broken did really caught your attention that you zeroed in on the environmental impact of our food system environmental impact of food. okay yep. so you're talking monoculture monoculture um overfishing okay. over 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 farming okay. over 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 degenerative as opposed to regenerative or exactly. even sustainable exactly okay got exactly it. but then there's the other piece depletion okay is is the food impact that manufactured food has you talked about it a little while ago when okay. reading the labels yeah they call that manufactured food and by the way they're trying to manufacture meat right now oh they've done luckily some 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 greenies have done some carbon studies to determine that manufactured meat is way worse than our, you know, farting cows and my and my my belching sheep. So right. yeah, good luck with yeah. that. <laughs> our food economy. Yeah. Our food economy is a system yep. that is set up. And I don't want to badmouth the food system that we have set up completely because it it feeds in this country 330 million people every day. So there's something beautiful about it. It's just, there's very tenuous. It's tenuous in its ability to deliver healthy food and to deliver food, especially in, this, in the face of breakdown. So- Perfectly said. I agree completely, by the way, but yeah. 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 So what is a local food economy? Yeah. What is a food economy? That was the question I pondered about, oh my gosh, almost 15, 18 years ago. Oh, seven. Food okay. economy is the system by which we grow harvest, distribute, prepare, eat, and dispose of food waste. You covered it all. You're yeah. boiling the ocean here, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> You're looking to boil the ocean. Okay. So Great. it's a food system that grows, harvests, distributes, prepares, yeah. and then we eat our food, and then leftovers get processed. This is Great. a very degenerative linear system. Agreed. It's the one that we have set up. And what I started looking at was how do we make that a regenerative system rather than degenerative? So rather than it being a linear system, I made it a circular system. And you make it a circular system by take the, taking the end waste products and you compost them all. And there's a myriad of, way of com ways of composting them. You compost them all and you turn them into fertilizer and good soil so you can grow, no grow new food. Yes. Okay. So that takes- sense. We have a finite that, earth that makes sense that we should keep it self-contained. Exactly. Yeah. So that was the, the first step was to define the food economy. The second step was how do we take that food economy and make it a circular food economy? And we do that by composting everything that's left over and turning it back into food. If that which you're composting is food to start with. Say that again. All chemicals. 
if that which you are composting is food to start with. Yes. Meaning you don't have all kinds of the other additives other and dyes and preservatives and emulsifiers and all of the stuff that's not exactly. good for us and it certainly isn't good for our soil. Right. Well, and this goes to a whole another conversation. Yeah. Uh, eating real food. Yeah. Eat real food. Yeah. When you read that label, you should know what all those words mean. <laughs> right. All right. Great. Okay. So now we now we define what a food economy is. Yeah. We defined um, now we defined what a food economy is. The next thing is we want to do it local. So making it regenerative and making it local. And so what would it take? You chose local because that's more sustainable, less transportation? Yes. Or why? Yes. I believe uh -huh. that the, with a capital T, solution to our global food problem uh -huh. is local food. In Alaska too? In Alaska too. And Death Valley? And Death Valley. Okay. Takes a little more work in both of those places. Okay. Yeah. But people should be growing local food and distributing local food and eating local food there too. By and extension, that would also mean larger population centered in those places that can support more sustainable food systems. Yeah. When okay. when you think of when you think about it, you know, a thousand years ago, people in Alaska and people in Death Valley, if they were living mm -hmm. there, they were they weren't going to the grocery store, they were growing their own food. Yeah. Okay. All right, great. So now we have, uh, what is a food economy? What is a local food economy? What is a circular food economy? Mm -hmm. Then the question is, what are the components that need to be in place for a successful local food economy? Yeah. You want to know the answer? My answer? Farmers. Farmers? Forests? Um, education? Education. Yep. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, let's see, here, here's my list. Yeah. Education, farming methods. So when I say growing food in the city, we can be growing food in the ground. We can be growing it in containers. We can be growing it in hydroponic greenhouses. We can be growing it on rooftops. We can be growing it in basements. We can be growing it, but growing it where we eat it. Yeah. Those, are all, those are all farming methods. Collection and distribution is number three. Mm-hmm. Because if you have food in a, in a field and it doesn't get harvested, then what good is it? Local seeds. Mm. We don't have local seeds. We don't have a local food system. If, yes. if, you, if you think about it, if transportations were to stop because of a trucker strike or anything else, the seeds that we have available in any urban area is what's on the racks at your big box stores and local nurseries. That's it. That's a problem. That is a problem. That's a problem. So I designed a fix for that as well. Mm -hmm. um, so we got education, farming methods, collection and distribution, local seeds, creating farmers and communities. There's mm -hmm. your farmer part. Value added products. So somebody raises kale and sells it to somebody that makes kale chips out of it. Okay. You make jam, 
you know, you know go to the, the cool thing about the farmers here or the farmers markets here in Asheville is you can't get into most of them unless you're raising the food yourself or you're making a value added product yourself. As it should be. As, as it should be. They're not selling t-shirts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the, this one took me a few years to get the last one. Okay. Culture. Mindset, Let's, awareness, awareness, embodying and embracing it into everyday life, eating seasonally, being okay, not buying, not needing that cherry yep. in February. Exactly. There's all those things, but let's talk about our conversation of about 30 minutes ago about the HOA. We're so accustomed to plentitude and doing whatever the hell we want and to hell with the consequences, then yeah. that's a big mind shift. That's, that's really big. That does require your Mack truck, doesn't it? Yep. And ah. you know, the, the, the culture includes um, city planners, yeah. uh, governmental rules. Can you grow food in your front yard? If you're in an HOA, it's likely you can't grow food in your front yard. So, wow. so now you can see why I got so excited with your question. Yeah. Because I have, this is a 15 year project. I've got some academic paper that I, papers that I've written about this. Mm -hmm. um, it's uh, my local food economy model. And it, Wow. Retrofitting a society is a lifetime of work is many lifetimes of work for many people simultaneously i've been at it for 50 years yeah and I'm, and I'm 61. okay so do you believe this can be done in our lifetime absolutely how it's it's uh, the mac truck the it's mac the mac truck. truck effect and I am doing absolutely everything that I can do every single day to get people to wake up and educate people about how they can grow their own food and put infrastructure in place for that. One of the, one of the things that about, well, 2011, what's that, 12 years ago? Uh -huh. I went to a week-long seed school in Tucson, Arizona. Mm -hmm. This was uh, how to start seeds, how to save seeds, how to, you know, figure it out. It was a week's worth of education on seed saving. And Bill McDormand, who's a friend of mine, we get him every month on our seed chat on our podcast. Um, he and I started a conversation about the local food economy model. And that's when seeds, local seeds got added to this model. And we discovered that we had a massive shortage of seeds. Yeah. And so we started pondering, what would it take to fix this? And so we started a business called the Great American Seed Up. You can find out us, find us at greatamericanseedup.org. And we have put together a community building project by which you can purchase seeds at amazing savings. And then you bag your own seeds and get them out to the community. And we, the first, usually the first weekend, or either the last weekend of October, the first weekend of November every year, we do an event in Phoenix called the Great American Seed Up. 
where people, it's a seed bazaar. It's in a 10,000 square foot room. We put a hundred open pollinated varieties of seeds in buckets and people come and scoop their own seeds. Oh my goodness. And it's, it's a Christmas for me. I can't imagine it, something. I would do that. Oh my gosh. That's so exciting. Is. I'm such it a nerd. That's so oh, exciting. No. <laughs> well, and think about it. We have this 10,000 square foot room and we'll easily get 300 people scooping seeds. Sure. On, you know, we just put them on church tables and each church table has two different varieties and each variety has a business card mm -hmm. about the, about what this is and how to propagate it and a mm -hmm. plastic bag. And so they walk up to the popcorn bucket and they take the scoop and the scoop started a quarter teaspoon all the way to a half a cup, depending mm -hmm. on the seed size. Mm -hmm. And they scoop it, put it in a Ziploc bag, take one of the business cards, slip it in the bag seal it up and mark i just got one scoop of armenian cucumbers and it was a dollar and a quarter and the scoops are designed to be five to ten times what you would get in a normal packet of seeds so you're getting a super amount of seeds and um they're open pollinated and it's just it's amazing and when covid hit so we've been doing this since 2013 this event since 2013 in Phoenix. And we've, we've put, I'm going to guess we've got 4,000 people that have scooped seeds at our event um, in Phoenix over that period of time. And when COVID hit, it's like, all right, now what do we do? So we put together seed up in a box and we put together this package that you can buy and share with your community. And we have communities that twice a year buy a bundle from us, a bundle of seeds, and they do their own scooping. They have a potluck and each per, you know, they get 10, 10, a 10 a package bundle with 10 uh, cards in it so that they dump it in a bowl and make it into 10 parts. And the packets cost is about 60 cents a packet. Oh my goodness. And that is way different than the packet of seeds that I had in my hand the other day that was $7.99. It was a specialty watermelon and there were 10 seeds in the packet. The biggest cost of a packet of seeds is the packaging and the marketing. And what we've done with this event is we've taken that out of the play and given you the opportunity to make massive scoops of seeds. And, you know, we get some people that just buy a, you know, a package for themselves so that they have all the seeds or we get some people that do community events, but this all goes again to what will it take to create a regenerative food, local food system. So. Wow. There's so much in there. There's so much in there. Yeah. How, how do you reach people who, okay. So, Oh, there's always going to be a portion, I'm not trying to be a, a wet blanket here, a little, little, little black storm cloud. Okay. Now, mm -hmm. Bear with yep. me. Yep, so, yep. There's always going to be people who are just like, yeah, that's nice. You do your thing. I'm just going to, my food comes from the grocery store. That's too much work. Mm -hmm. Okay. What so do you here's, do those people? here's what I do. Uh -huh. I show people what I do. We open up the place in, with tours. We do monthly classes. We do monthly chats. But it's all from the, I don't want to force any of this on anybody. Yeah, yeah. That's not my thing. What I do is I, I'm holding my hand out right now. 
Mm-hmm. And I have a little treat in my hand. It's called urban farming. And I hold it out to people and it's like, you know what? Check this out. You can do this too. And if they come toward me and they're interested, then they'll listen. If not, that's okay. And the Mack truck arrives. And when the Mack truck arrives, people wake up a little more. I think that we have some Mack trucks that are coming that are actually ultimately going to wake people up. I think you're right. I think it's going to be energy. Yeah. I think it's going to be energy. I don't know if you've ever listened to any of Chris Martinson's work, Mm -hmm. but he talks about three big factors that are um, to borrow some of your terminology with some of his, and you have a lot of very similar thought process. You should check them out. Peakprosperity.com. Um, he talks about environment, economy, and energy. Three is being, yep. yeah, as being the three big things that are causing, you know, Mac trucks coming, but energy ultimately is in everything. Energy is in the transportation. It's in the yep. chemical fertilizers. It's in the disposable packaging. It's in the inks and, and, and dyes for all kinds of things. It's the single-use product. It's the um, environmentally destructive plastics and the, the adhesives and the additives and the, the everything, the every, the everything, really styrofoam trays underneath meat, right? I mean, you name it, you understand. And um, if peak oil really is here, then we need to learn how to do the same with less or more with the same. Um, But anyway, you slice it, we're going to have a lot less energy to go around. Mm -hmm. So less opportunity to move things and uh, ignore soil depletion because without N, P, and K at an industrial level, those fields are not going to be as productive. I saw some research out of, I don't, I, I'm not sure if it was Iowa State or Nebraska, but they said within two or three years of not continually adding commercial fertilizers, grain yields in fields go down by 40%. At first, but then, then what? Then, oh, they then don't they recover after you use regenerative farming? Oh, that the study was without the chemical fertilizers, you have a dump in yield. You have a forty percent yield dump. Yep. Yes, regenerative, absolutely. And I, I, yeah, topsoil and is everything. But after how many decades and how many generations of depletion? And reliance on NP and K. I mean, you, you here in Central Ohio, we have we don't have those deep midwestern prairie soils like they have in Indiana, mm-hmm. but we have very good topsoil. And you know, I look at some of those fields that have been continuously farmed for a hundred years, and you can see that subsidence. Oh yeah. You know, when it's dry and they're out there disking, there's a plume pulling away the topsoil. And if it was high organic matter, it wouldn't be pulled away. So that's already depleted. It's just getting worse. It's going to be a long time. Like your two feet of topsoil was after, would you say 30 years? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, 
no joke. That is that is a huge victory. Oh yeah. But you can't count on that level of replenishment across the board um without serious U-turn in management disruption to our food supply, which is fairly inelastic, only three to four percent year to year. I mean that's that's not a lot of wiggle room to have to make a sudden change without someone going hungry and something breaking yeah well, and it's highly the, complex yeah it is and please don't hear me like i'm really bad mouthing that our current food system our current food system feeds the united states Absolutely. every day mm -hmm. three meals a day mm -hmm. that in itself is miraculous and more we ship food out and we ship food out. It's yeah. just the local food system brings us the resiliency that we need. I agree. Yeah. Now local farmers only get 15 cents of every dollar that someone spends. So 85% of the cost that people pay at the grocery store is going to the system. It's not going to the farmer. Mm -hmm. Right. It's not going to those food producers. And that's why we need to really go to the farmer's market, shop the farmer's market. Yeah. So many people just getting out of agriculture faster than new people are joining. I don't know. I think maybe the Mac truck of COVID has, I've really seen a resurgence in interest. Oh yeah. People want to get into agriculture, but they don't have yes. that generational knowledge to draw upon. They don't have that background. They don't have that they don't have mentors they don't have teachers there's not enough yeah. to go around and even those that have been in agriculture a lot of those mentors and teachers are conventional farmers and agronomists they're not regenerative sure that's changing yeah that's, that's changing. changing i i mentor and i have a mentor yeah i have several mentors actually that are yeah. that i count on yeah are they your own generation? Are they younger or? Um, they're both probably the two I'm thinking of right now are both probably both 10 years older than I am. Okay. Um, and they're deeply ingrained in uh, what they've been doing for their entirety of their life. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, as, as being in my early 60s, I discovered a few years ago, I just need to, I need to be mentoring more. That's the way I can make a bigger shift, a bigger change is by mentoring people, by sharing. So, How would you go about doing that? You've got so many ideas you're acting on. You must have a plan for that. Um, no plan. Just okay. open. I stay open to it. It's like, you know, if I see somebody that's doing something cool. Um, so I interviewed a, a young lady um, on my podcast a while back. And she is growing, she is growing an elderberry business. So she oh. needs to buy elderberries. And um, I said, where are you getting your elderberries? Well, I get a little here, a little here, there. Some of them come from Europe. It's like, hold on, time out. What? What did you just say? Europe? And this was last fall. And, I, and so basically to sum up the conversation, it's like, all right, I can grow elderberries for you. When I said that, I didn't have a clue what an elderberry was, except I got it in syrup at the grocery store or how to grow them. 
And now I have a hundred three foot tall elderberry plants that I started from sticks in the ground in pots, ready, getting ready to go in the ground in the next two weeks. And I, uh, Michael Kilpatrick is a, a farmer in Iowa that does a lot of teaching. Mm-hmm. He's, got, he's got an online platform for teaching and he had an elderberry summit. So I paid for and attended his elderberry summit. I'm learning. So I consider him a bit of a mentor in that. There's an elderberry Facebook page that you can contribute to and learn from. There's, uh, you know, and, and so I'm discovering it along the way. I've had my partner, Heidi, said to me, Greg, what are you going to do when you have all these elderberries on the trees and how are you going to harvest them? It's like, yeah, I don't know. I'll figure it out when it happens. <laughs> and I got people I can ask. So I'm a, I am a lifelong learner. I'm, you know, I'm deeply committed to learning continuously. And that's through mentoring or watching YouTubes or, 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 or. So. Wow. So are you going to, are you going to contact your friend with the elderberry business and say, oh, yeah. I, I solved your problem. Now come get, get people to pick my, my bajillion tons of elderberries. Already have. All right. There you In go. Fact, yeah. That was my first question for us. Like, how can I, can I, Samara, can I grow? Her name is Samara Price. Can I grow for you? And she said, love it. So we've been in, you know, communication since I got these, they've been, I've been growing them now for, five months. And um, I suspect with the planting method that I talked about uh-huh. earlier, we'll jumpstart mm-hmm. these and I'll probably get a crop next year. You're making me want to start elderberries because I buy elderberry syrup from a dear mm-hmm. friend of mine every fall to be prepared for cold and flu season. Yeah, She makes her own elderberries, but she's she doesn't have a source for them. So she says, if you have wild growing elderberries on your property for so many elderberries, I will trade you for some of my syrup. And she has agreements with a bunch of different people locally, but it's really sort of you know, bird dog for me and I'll go forage on your land. I mean, it's very yeah. iffy, haphazard. I don't know. I mean, it's, yeah. it's efficient, but it's small, but that's interesting. That's interesting. So <laughs> the curious, the curious thing about the elderberries is that I bought a hundred elderberry sticks, yeah, just the branches. They had four nodes on them, four or five nodes on them. I stuck them in soil and they rooted. That's how easily they grow. Okay. So yeah. to everyone listening who wants to grow elderberries, uh, Greg says it's really easy. <laughs> the growing part. Now I haven't harvested any yet, so we'll see, you know, have me on again in a year and I'll be able to tell you more. Ah, details, details, details. Yeah, right. <laughs> At least you got the berries. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah, I bet you there's a lot of things like that. Um, yeah. Uh, natural remedies and other things like that that we are going to be rediscovering as a society. I, I think yeah. there's so much mistrust in um, big pharma now. I think that. Oh. I think that everyone's faith in the system, the big system, the health system, the food system, the, the everything system has really been, I think it's really been kicked down and people are very skeptical. Yep. Whether it's yeah. everything. That's a whole separate conversation. But yeah, I think that the whole uh-huh. um, eat for health, 
and look at your entire life and everything that you eat as opposed to running to the doc and getting a pill. Yeah. I think there's growing awareness around that, which is healthy. I mean, it's good, but uh, we definitely have a health crisis in this country. Oh. We have people suffering from malnutrition, but they're obese. Yep. We have nutrient poor foods. Yep. That's the food system. It delivers a manufactured food item. It is. And you know, I think once this is something now tell me if you've ever heard anyone say this. I feel like after I started growing my own vegetables and fruits and berries and even raising our own meats here, like mm -hmm. uh, we have uh, goats and sheep and chickens and turkeys and partridge in the pear tree. So we've got all kinds of things here. And I noticed that the satiation factor of eating our homegrown food seems to be higher. Like you go to a restaurant and they'll give you a big portion of something and yeah, you're, you're, you're full, but you're satisfied after you're full. Whereas something that we grow here in our own, or we've even traded with another farmer who uses similar methods to ours, a small lamb chop is enough to feel that satiety. Mm -hmm. It's, a small handful of our own Caroline raspberries. It's one of our peaches as opposed to a bowl full of canned peaches. I mean, you know, it's a little bit of arugula and spinach as opposed to a whole head of you know, lettuce or whatever from the grocery store. There seems to be the satiation factor. Is that due to nutrient density? Is that a, is that a mental thing? Have you heard anyone say, do, what, do you have a theory on that? I don't actually, um, but it makes sense. I wonder if our bodies detect nutrient density and say, yep. Oh, yeah, uh, that I'm convinced of. Self-regulation. Wow. Well, I gotta Our, tell you. I hour and 45 minutes that one i know like it is that. and it's flying i feel like we need to do more of these i, I gotta tell you um i feel like i've met a kindred spirit here i'm so oh, excited yes. that you agreed to hook up with me and um do this podcast i really appreciate it uh it's been super interesting you've given me so much to think about uh i'd love to, to hear it out and read that paper i mean i'll get it to you uh, and I, I have to say that I've, I'm blown away by the questions you're asking, and I'm really impressed by the questions you're asking. Well, thank you. Yeah, they, they, uh, they're the right questions we should be asking right now. I take that to heart. I really appreciate that. So coming from someone with your level of experience and thoughtfulness and just time in the trenches doing this before I even knew it was a thing. Yeah. Thanks. I really appreciate it. This is not easy. You know, there's, there's not enough hours in the day, uh, <laughs> it's a hard way to make a living. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's, you know, it, it's, it's hard to ring the bell when everything seems fine without people saying, what is your deal? But, um, it's a delicate balance and yeah. you, you certainly do it well you, by building enthusiasm and, and interest and, and fostering sort of that um, 
people taking control of that own little portion mm-hmm. of their food. And I mean, it's such a basic thing. Yeah. Eating, feeding your family. What's yeah. more basic than that? And when we get together with people, where do we meet? Usually around food. Yes. And, and make it positive and fun and happy. Yes. And yeah. 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 There's, there's definitely a social aspect. I mean, even when people were locked down, what did they do? They started cooking. They started baking more through baking bread and sourdoughs and things like that. Yeah. yeah it's very true. And it's, it's culturally significant. Yeah. You know, with regenerative methods, people can also be growing more of those ethnic foods that have come from other areas of the world. Right. Through different um, methods and greenhouses and hoop houses and high tunnels and things like that that can help them extend their growing season to be a little bit more friendly to those those ingredients that are part of their cultural heritage and part of that community building. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So how do people follow your work and support you in your mission, any of your missions? Awesome. Well, thank you for that. So yeah. urbanfarm.org is my website. It's been mm-hmm. up for, I don't know, 22, 23 years. And the blog goes back about 15 years, lots of data there. And if somebody wants to um, get information on building healthy soil, we talked about the healthy soil, they go to healthy soil act.com i have a landing page for them to get information on that Um, and urban farm podcast is at urbanfarmpodcast.com come on and listen urbanfarmpodcast.com come on urbanfarmpodcast.com yep all right well thank you so much it has been the time has flown it's just been fantastic and oh my god delight uh, to talk with you Oh, I really appreciated it. You just like breathe so much energy into the rest of my week. I'm glad this didn't, I'm glad this didn't wait. I, I really, yeah. really was so enthused to have your, uh, you know, immediate communication. Well, thank you so much. Good luck in your ventures and we will talk again. Thanks.